just having people hear the story and then if I can give them some strategies that I've kind of picked up on that I've learned along the way that maybe they can use as well. But the main thing is just having people know about it. Because I think a lot of the times people can get their own lesson that they need just from hearing a story. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Marine Sergeant Rob Jones to WarDocs. Rob served in the Marines as a combat engineer and was deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. On July 22, 2010, in Afghanistan, while trying to clear an area for possible IEDs, Rob stepped on a pressure plate, which led to a fierce explosion where he immediately lost his lower legs and nearly lost his life. In this episode, you'll hear Rob's amazing journey of survival and recovery from the point of injury to rehabilitation. He's been able to do some amazing things, such as meddling and rowing in the Paralympics, riding a bike across the country, and running 31 marathons in 31 days. He provides a unique perspective on military medicines through his experience as a wounded warrior and shares his encouraging story of turning a potential tragedy into a pathway of meaning and inspiration to veterans and many others. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Marine Sergeant Rob Jones to Wardox. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. So you were a junior at Virginia Tech when you decided to join the Marines. Tell us a little about what led to that decision. Yeah, I was a computer science major and all through high school and up to my junior year, all I really ever wanted to do was program video games, work for a video game programming company or something. And unfortunately, I wasn't really a very good student. I spent too much time playing video games and not enough time learning how to make them. And so I kind of got to a point in my junior year where I was basically failing. I mean, I wasn't really doing well in any of my classes that had anything to do with computer science. I didn't have a lot of friends because I wasn't very social. So I was kind of in this state where I was failing at what I wanted to do. I was lonely. I was isolated and just wasn't feeling good about myself. And luckily, I had a friend, my one friend from Virginia Tech. He had joined the Marine Corps the year before as part of his family tradition and talked to him about it. And he he just told me that the Marine Corps was one of the best things he'd ever done. So that kind of just made me curious about what exactly it was. I never really knew anything about it. And so I went and I got out the first book about the Marine Corps that I could find, which was this book called Brotherhood of Heroes about the Battle of Pele Lu in World War II. And the book just really struck a chord with me. It showed me that I was missing courage. I was missing brotherhood, especially. I was missing a selfless purpose. And that's what all the Marines in that book had. And I, that, that's why it struck such a chord with me. Uh, and I think I joined the Marine Corps maybe two days later. I went down to the recruiter's office, signed up. What was your specialty in the Marines? I ended up being a combat engineer, and that's actually a very wide discipline. So it, it encompasses a lot of different things. So it can go from construction is the main thing, and then doing a lot of earthworks and building airstrips and that kind of thing is another area of it. But then the area that I was involved in was using demolitions for breaching and defeat and obstacle creation. And so part of the definition of obstacles would be minefields. And so when we went to common engineer school, we learned how to use all the tools that the Marine Corps has to get through minefields and in place minefields. And so we had a lot of experience with metal detectors, mine detectors, things like that. 
And so when the threat became IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan, that role to defeat the IED threat sort of naturally fell to the combat engineer discipline. And so that's kind of what I ended up doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. More Afghanistan for IEDs than Iraq, I was primarily finding disburied weapons caches with the bevel detector. So you deployed to Iraq in 2008, and as you said, you're looking for weapons caches. But then again, you deployed in Afghanistan in 2010, and your job was to find and neutralize IEDs that were a threat to mission success. How do you prepare for that kind of nerve-wracking experience using a handheld metal detector? Yeah, it should be pointed out that this particular metal, it's not like the metal detector that you see on the beach with that guy that's trying to find wedding rings. They're really, really, really sophisticated uh, and expensive metal detectors. So they are really effective pieces of equipment. The way that you prepare is to train extensively with the metal detector in all sorts of different scenarios. So we would set up what we call IED lanes or mine lanes in engineer school. And we just kind of have like the six foot wide lane marked off. And we would go in and bury what we, based on intelligence, what we thought we would expect to see in our area of operations in terms of pressure plates, batteries. And so we would take these little shampoo bottles, like a PERT Plus bottle, and we would put maybe two strands of copper wire in there, like a you know very thin strand of copper wire. And we'd have somebody go out and bury several of them, and then also put some decoys out there, and then also offset some batteries around. And we would just go through these IED lanes, trying to find the ones that were buried. So we just do that over and over and over. And we try and set up different scenarios based on the TTPs of the Taliban or Al-Qaeda in the area. Like sometimes they would put metal on top of an IED, like little shards of metal, in order to distract us and make us think that there wasn't anything there. and was just random jagged piece of metal that we were finding. And then we would continue on and step on the pressure plates. So we try and act like the Taliban in practice using our metal detectors in that way. Uh, and then we would also just learn about how to take those tactics and apply them in very complex situations like ambushes involving IEDs or doing it on an operation where, you know, operational tempo is, is a concern. So it was just, you know, long story short, practice, 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 training, training, training. So train as you fight, basically. Yeah. And then from a mental perspective, I didn't do a whole lot of preparation there because that kind of just comes with being a Marine. I mean, there's it's the same exact thing as having to face gunfire or having to fight a sniper. You're doing it for your fellow Marines and you do it for the mission. So there wasn't a whole lot of specific mental training that we had to go through in order to prepare to walk into a minefield or walk into an area that had an IED. So tell us about how the day started on July 22nd, 2010. What was the mission? And was there any inclination in your mind that this was not going to be just another day deployed? I felt like it was just going to be another mission. What we were doing was we were seizing Taliban territory in an area where they basically had the run of the place for several years called Sangin, Afghanistan, in Helmand province. And what we were doing was basically driving a vehicle column into their territory with infantry dismounts on either side, sort of protecting the column from ambush. And we were just kind of driving and seizing compounds. And if the Taliban didn't like it, then we would either kill them or they would run away. And so we did that once, seized several compounds, set them up as patrol bases, and then ran security patrols out of those bases for, I think, a week or two. And then on July 22nd, 2010, that's when we were doing a second push and seizing more territory. 
And no, I mean, there really wasn't any indication to me that it was just going to be another day deployed. But that being said, another day deployed comes with the, the risk of stepping on an ID or being shot, et cetera. You know, all the risks that come with war. So describe what you were doing when the IED went off and what you experienced soon after the explosion. There was a vehicle column that was seizing territory and we were providing security for the vehicles on the outside. And I think around one o'clock or noon, we took a break and basically we kind of just knelt down in this little area that we were in and ate some lunch and squad leaders came together, had a little meeting, talked about what we were going to be doing in the next few hours. And we stepped off after about 15 minutes and our point man stepped on an IED. And now luckily for him and luckily for everybody else too, that his IED malfunctioned, it did what's called a low order detonation. So just the blasting cap that was in the IED went off. And usually that's meant to initiate this larger explosive that the blasting cap is stuck down into. But for whatever reason, it didn't happen. But that area now becomes an area that has a very high likelihood of containing an IED because the procedure for the Taliban at that point was whenever they put an IED in place, they usually put two, three, or four because they know that when one person steps on an IED, another person is going to come and try and help them. And so what they're trying to do is not get just get that first person, but get the rescuers as well. So they kind of planted them in clusters. And so my job then came into play because I needed to guide us through that area using my metal detector. And so I was starting to do that. I was in the process of doing that when I stepped on a, a pressure plate that was the secondary. And unfortunately for me, mine operated correctly. And I was probably unconscious for about 20 seconds. It was like, I was like, I was teleported from standing up using my metal detector to the ground screaming and having tunnel vision and not really having my senses. Just that those are the only two senses I really had at first were I could see tunnel vision and I heard myself screaming. And that's kind of what I felt like in the immediate aftermath. So what kind of medical care was provided right at the point of injury? And who was the first person to provide any aid? And what did they do? See, the, the interesting situation here is that they couldn't just run over to me because we all knew about the whole clusters of IED. So they actually had to get another engineer over to sweep to me from them very quickly. Obviously, the first thing that happened was tourniquets replaced on my legs by this guy, Shane Otwell and Keith Johnson. They both put, I think, two tourniquets on each of my legs to stop the bleeding. And from there, they waited for the corpsman. The corpsman got there shortly after. He gave me morphine and he put one of those tubes that goes up your nose to open your airway. I forget what they're called, but they put a tube up my nose. That was the, the nasopharyngeal airway just to keep the, the airway open, most likely. Yeah. 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 That sounds about right. And at that point, my other senses started coming back and I was able to talk and I was able to think about what the future was going to hold for me. And I kind of assumed that I was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. And I was going to have to be taken care of by my mom or my parents for the rest of my life. So, and then my legs felt like, it kind of felt like they'd fallen asleep, like a painful numbness, kind of like when you fall asleep on your arm and it goes numb and it wakes you up and it kind of hurts, but magnified by 50, a hundred times. So this really painful numbness. And from there, they called up the CASI back and ultimately they loaded me onto a stretcher. And there was one point I wanted to ask you, there was one point where I was starting to get drowsy because I was in shock and I had the morphine. And so I started to try and go to sleep and my friends kept slapping me in the face to keep me awake. And I wanted to ask you whether or not that's actually a, 
a thing. Like if I had fallen asleep at that point, is it likely that I would have passed away? It's kind of a wives' tale, especially after you've lost some blood and gotten some medication to help with your pain. Not being as conscious as wide awake and answering questions is not something that the medical people are too concerned about. They're concerned, obviously, when you're coming off of that stuff and if you're not responding appropriately. But during that time, I think that would be a normal response of the body and, and shouldn't be something that people should say, oh, this is pretend something bad. What they're doing is, is really controlling the bleeding, make sure that you're breathing, try to maintain your vital signs and get you to the next area of care. Which brings me to my next question, which is, how long do you think it took for that hospital corpsman to get to you physically after your buddies were able to put those tourniquets on you? Not long. I mean, he was probably there within a couple minutes. He was he was already close by. I was unconscious for 20 seconds, I think, during that time. That's when they were sweeping over to me. So they had to do that. And then the tourniquets were on by the time the corpsman got there. But these guys were so well-practiced in putting tourniquets on, that didn't take very long. So I would say he was probably, on my perspective, I would say he was there within a couple of minutes to administer morphine. How much training did you get in combat buddy care? So if one of your comrades had a similar thing happen to them, would you be prepared to go and render aid and put tourniquets on and, and try to help them in the initial you may be putting some pressure on some bleeding spots, helping with an airway. How much training did you have as a non-medical person in that unit? I was a reservist, so I didn't get tons beforehand. I mean, I knew how to do the basics. I mean, I knew how to t put tourniquets on. That was kind of the most important thing uh, was put tourniquets on. But if you asked me to put that nose thing into somebody's nose, or if you asked me to help somebody with a collapsed lung or kind of more advanced things like that, or if like a, I could put a pressure bandage on, I do that kind of thing, but not a lot compared to a corpsman. So looking back on that experience, do you think that the non-corpsman, just the, the non-medical folks, should they have more training or do you think they get enough to take care of that real initial point of injury care? I mean, I think that if I could go back and change anything, I probably would have done, tried to do more medical training because it never hurts to have the knowledge, but you just, you also have to balance that with the training that you only have so much time and so much money and so much effort that you can put forth into your training. And so there's a reason why every single Marine isn't a Navy corpsman level. It just takes a lot of training to get that done. So I think for me, it was, I was probably at a about the level that I should have been at because I had to spend a lot of time for my job, which was defeating IEDs. And there's a reason that we have corpsmen. And we have so many of them because it takes a lot of training to know how to do that stuff. And everybody else is already training for their specialty. And so you only have so much time. So it never hurts if you can get more, but at the same time, you have to balance that with what you're already training for. Did everybody at the time carry a tourniquet? Yeah, everybody would have two or three. Okay. And typically you would put the tourniquet on yourself. You would use your own medical stuff for you. And if you were helping a buddy, you'd use theirs for them. So you mentioned that they put you on a stretcher and got you into the Kazovac system. How did you actually get off the battlefield? Yeah, so they loaded me onto a stretcher and carried me to basically a tank, this thing called an assault breacher vehicle, but it's basically an Abrams tank. And they loaded me in the back of that. And then at that point, the corpsman gave me something else to make me unconscious, probably more morphine, I guess. 
And from there, that tank waited for a helicopter. He drove over to meet a helicopter. And I got loaded into an RAF helicopter, I think. At what point during this experience did you realize that you likely had lost both legs at least below the knees? Immediately. I mean, I knew what had happened. Even when I was barely cognizant in the first five seconds after I woke up after the after the blast, I knew instinctively that I had stepped on an IED and that pieces of my legs were going to be missing. And I actually asked the my buddies at site of injury, I asked them if it was above the knee or below the knee. And they told me at the point, at that point, it was my amputations were below the knee a few inches or a couple inches. And so that made me happy because having your knees is a, a big deal. So how much do you remember of your evacuation through Afghanistan? Do you remember much or did you go back and look at your records to piece it together? How long were you there and what happened? I don't remember anything after the getting in the tank and being put unconscious in Afghanistan. But yeah, I've I've gone through my medical records and that's where they, they performed several amputation revisions. So they ended up amputating me above the knee on both my legs or through the knee on my left and above the knee on my right. And the next time I woke up was in Germany. I think that was about two or three days after my injury is the next time I woke up in, in Germany. And really, I don't think you're actually even supposed to wake up in Germany, but I did. And I was just there for about 12 hours while I waited for an Air Force transportation medevac from Germany to Bethesda, Maryland. So I wasn't there very long. And that's where my squad leader informed me that I was an above the knee amputee. So we had talked to you previously, a guest who was injured in a suicide bombing in Afghanistan. And like you, after it happened, didn't remember really much through the process, but went back and actually was able to find some of the medical professionals that worked on him in Afghanistan and along the way through the evacuation tree. Is that something that you'd ever be interested in is trying to find out who was involved in your care? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. I mean, that information might even be in, in my medical records. I haven't even thought about doing it. I did do this one trip back to Launchstuhl, Germany one time where I think Wounded Warrior Project sent a bunch of guys back to just to visit the hospital. And I think there were a couple of people there that remembered working on me. And so I did do that a little bit. And then I also have this little booklet that got sent along with me from, you know, I guess, place to place where various people wrote things in it for me, like a couple of the air crews. One of the things that this previous guest had talked about was he found one of the surgeons and they were able to connect and and really form a relationship and talk about what happened and what was going on. And so if ever you need help doing that, I'd be happy to to look into it if you have those records. Yeah, maybe I will. I mean, it'd be cool just to be able to write them a little letter and say, thanks, really. <laughs> so when did your family find out about your injuries? When, when were they notified? Now that I don't, I'm not sure, but they were at the hospital three or four days after my injury when I got there. So I think the Marine Corps tends to try and notify people as quickly as they can. Just probably the next day or something, I would guess, because they are usually pretty efficient at doing that. And do you know if your family was able to speak with any of the medical professionals to talk about what was going on in your care and what the prognosis was? I don't think that they were talking to them before I got to Bethesda. But then after Bethesda, yeah, they were kind of my representatives in a way, them and the Marine Corps liaison. Like I couldn't speak. And so the first time that you saw your family was in Bethesda. 
Yeah, so they loaded you up. They fly you in Andrews, and then they put you on this big sort of semi-truck ambulance, and um, they drive you over to Bethesda, and they unload you at the front. And a lot of the times, they alert the family as to when your ambulance is going to be coming. So they wait there, and they greet you kind of as you're being rolled through the lobby. And so my family was all there. So I suspect the first several days arriving in Bethesda were kind of a blur, but did you form any impressions about the medical care that you were receiving in Bethesda when you got there? I was definitely very um, out of it and hallucinating from all the pain medication and the anesthesia and everything I was going through surgery just about every day for the first week. Uh, But what I can remember, I remember having an ICU nurse basically to myself or maybe me and one other person. And I, yeah, I don't remember having any issues with anything there. So I, yeah, I, I mean, it was great. It was great care. I mean, it was great care the entire time. So you had mentioned that during the evacuation at some point, either in Afghanistan, in Germany, the the doctors, the surgeons had converted the amputation to an above knee amputation. When you got to Bethesda, what did they tell you about what were the options and were there more surgeries involved in Bethesda when you got there? Yeah. I mean, I didn't really have any options at that point just because they had already amputated, but there were a lot more surgeries. I was going for the next, so like I said, I was in surgery just about every day in the ICU and most, but most of the surgeries were debridements. So they weren't doing major revisions. They were just taking out the dead tissue or any, any other tissue that they needed to take out. Maybe that was infected or whatever. So, and then finally, I did a skin graft from my left thigh to my right thigh. My primary training is a urologist. And one of the things that I remember from that time was that IED injuries not only were devastating for the lower extremities and sometimes the upper extremities, but also the external genitalia were at risk as well because the body armor didn't cover that area, especially from below. Did you have any other injuries that you sustained that were a long lasting impact? Yeah. So I had a a lot of, there's a lot, I had a lot of shrapnel go up into my buttocks area and that resulted in me having a colostomy put in. So they diverted my colon to my, to a colostomy just to prevent risk of infection to the wounds of my buttocks. And then also my testicles were obviously traumatized and they ended up, I think removing half of a testicle at that point. And then from there, they didn't do any more surgeries, but my testicles ended up, I guess, atrophying to the point that I can't have, they don't function anymore. I, don't, I can't have kids and I don't produce my own testosterone. So one of the things that we would hear is that anecdotes from patients with injuries on the battlefield that were potentially involving the genitalia, they'd ask their buddies, they'd say, hey, did I lose my manhood? Is, is my junk okay? And if they felt that that was gone, they didn't have a reason to live. Did any of those kind of thoughts go through your mind after the injury? Yeah. I mean, that was, yeah, that was one of the things I asked about at the site of injury. Cause I, the first thing I actually checked was my hands. I looked at, held my hands in my face and I saw that I had all 10 fingers. And then, yeah, I felt in my crotch area. And I think that everything down there was just kind of numb from the blast. So I actually, I thought that I had lost everything down there. But my buddies, knowing the importance, let me know that everything was fine. And uh, I don't know if I would have thought that that meant I shouldn't live anymore. But yeah, that was a concern of mine. And I think it's a concern for all men. 
And losing any body part is a concern for everybody, I think. So had you, before deployment, you knew that you were in a, a dangerous profession and you would be at risk of being injured. Had you ever considered donating sperm before deployment? I hadn't just because I was only 23 or 24 when I deployed. And because I kind of always of the opinion that it's never going to happen to you. And you kind of have to have that that attitude because if you really think it's going to happen to you, then that tends to immobilize you and makes you ineffective at your at your doing your job. And so I kind of had that opinion that it's not going to happen to me. I didn't even take my life insurance all that seriously. I, I think me and my buddy even put each other in for 10,000 bucks. So I wasn't really taking a whole lot of that long-term life decision stuff seriously. So yeah, I mean, at that point, I wasn't, I, I, I don't know that I would have. But if I had somebody come in and talk about it before we left, maybe it would have changed my mind or made me see the importance. Yeah, because as a urologist, that's one of the things for policy is we discussed, is that something that pre-deployment, that should be an option for soldier, sailor, Marines going into combat where they could sustain an injury or some other things can also be done at the, the point of injury when you get to a surgeon that can preserve sperm, but that requires obviously a chain of custody, consent, and, and things like that. So just kind of interested in looking back at your experience, what would have worked for you knowing what you know now? Yeah. I mean, obviously knowing what I know now, I would have banked some sperm, but I think what you're talking about is a really good idea and that you can, it's, I think it would be really easy to give advanced consent. You can give advanced consent for a lot of things. I mean, they put blood in my body without asking me. So I think it's kind of a natural thing that they could easily do where you have your, in your paperwork or on your dog tags or something. This is my social security number. This is my religious preference. This is my preference for harvesting sperm or all the different procedures that you're willing to have happen if you're unconscious. So I think that's kind of a, yeah, I don't know why they wouldn't have already had that. So yeah, it's frustrating, but at the same time, this wasn't in place at the time. So pain is often a very significant issue following severe injuries, especially amputation injuries. How well do you think that your pain was managed throughout the time in the hospital and then in early recovery time? I mean, it was managed very well. There was only one point at which I had breakthrough pain and it wasn't really even that big of a deal. I had access to all the pain control I could possibly want. I had a pain button, a button that delivered Dilaudid once every five minutes or maximum once every five minutes. I don't remember really ever being in pain. So how about when you got out of the hospital and you were on outpatient regimen for pain? How well was that managed by the healthcare team? Um, again, it was managed really well. I, they took away my pain button in my IV shortly before I left Bethesda and they put me on opiate pills, I think oxycodone. And again, I don't really remember being in any pain. I mean, to the point, the only thing I would say is that they didn't really monitor my ongoing need. I sort of had to self end my prescription. Like they didn't really check in with me about, hey, are you still in pain? And then kind of evaluate whether or not I should not have the opiates. They probably would have just kept giving, giving them to me if I wanted to, if I wanted them. And so I would say that could be one potential failing of the system is that maybe they could have monitored that a little bit better. But I think also back during that time, medical profession wasn't really quite as in tune to 
just how addictive and how problem causing long-term opiate prescriptions are. So I think that'd probably be a lot different now. So were there any other frustrations with the system initially when you were out of the hospital, but still really having aggressive rehabilitation care? And the only frustrating thing, I don't know that it was, I would necessarily say it was frustrating, but I sort of had to self-diagnose a, couple, a few things. Like the, I had to ask to be taken off the opiates, even though I wasn't really taking them anymore. I had to ask whether or not I should even be prescribed them anymore. It wasn't really an issue for me, but I just had to ask. I had to ask about whether or not my colostomy should be taken off or should be reversed. And I ultimately had to self-diagnose my own low testosterone because based on my medical records, I I was under the impression that I had only had half of a testicle removed and I had everything else. I asked questions about that during my in, inpatient stay at Walter Reed. I think the doctors came in. I said, this, this doesn't look or feel right down there. And they looked at the records and they felt and they're, they didn't really have any answers for me. And so I just kind of kept going on and on and on. I was having hot flashes. And so I was just kind of trying, I, I sort of self-diagnosed that maybe I have low testosterone. And so I went to the clinic and got an appointment with a urologist and lo and behold, my testosterone was like nine. And so very, very low. And so I got put on testosterone medication and I was having sexual problems with my girlfriend. I had trouble getting and maintaining erections, that kind of thing. And so once I got on testosterone, all those problems went away. But that was the only thing that I would say is a little bit frustrating was that just the the monitoring seemed to be not as great as it should have been. Yeah, it's it's a good thing that you finally got diagnosed and treated. And I can tell you that sometimes after major injuries, there is a suppression of testosterone, but it is something that, especially with a testicular injury, testicular surgery, that's something that should be followed. And ultimately, if the testosterone levels do not return to a level that kind of makes you feel normal and function normal, then replacement is indicated. And I'm just wondering whether or not, I I don't really know how long it took for my, how long does it take a testicle to atrophy to the point that it doesn't function anymore? See, I mean, that, that is a case by case really scenario. It, It really depends on how well the blood supply to the testicle is left after surgery or after the injury how much right. of the testicle actually had irreversible damage following the blast concussion. All of those things are difficult to say. It takes X time for a testicle to go from function to non-function. But it's something that as a urology specialist is we want to make sure that we follow a patient that has an injury, that the things that we're concerned about testicular function, which are fertility and hormonal function, that both of those are considered, diagnosed, and treated. Yeah, because that's I don't even remember ever speaking to a urologist until I made my own appointment. And so I'm just wondering if there's if if my testicle was still functioning two weeks after my injury, then it's possible because I was cognizant by then. So if somebody was monitoring that situation, then things could have been different. So I don't really know. I don't I'm not sure what was happening. I don't really recall because I had a catheter in and everything. Right. So I'm not really sure what was going on below the belt. Sometimes there's not a lot that you can do after an acute injury. And the treatment scenario is, let's see how well the body repairs itself. And then if it doesn't, that's when we can help 
sustain normal testosterone functions by replacing it. So it, you may have had the same outcome, but I think having somebody who's on that issue and kind of informing you that this is a potential complication of an injury or prior surgery that we need to follow you up and make sure that we're checking for these things. Those are things that one of the reasons we talk to folks on Wardox is to figure out how can we improve things for the next patient. And so it's invaluable to get feedback from folks like you to say, hey, this is where we can improve how we care for our patients. Yeah, and I'm sure it was probably one of those things that was done in Afghanistan, probably, and then to probably just overlook because the extent of my injuries was so severe, they were probably just focusing on the life-saving aspects of everything. But at the same time, you kind of have to assume that you're going to save the life. So you have to start thinking about other stuff too. Right. So I, I imagine it probably just got looked over because there were so many different things that they did to me. So where did you wind up going for rehab and what kind of expectations did you have? And what were you told by the rehab folks, the PT folks? What did they say would the likely long-term outcome be given your injuries? I mean, they don't typically give you long-term outcomes besides you're going to be able to do everything that you are able to work to do. They can't really tell you because there's a lot of different factors that go into it, such as how long your stumps are, what kind of heterotopic ossification you have, aromas, things like that, that make wearing legs harder. There's a lot of things that go into that, but I never... I was at the the MATC, the Military Advanced Training Center in um, at Walter Reed, state-of-the-art facility, tremendous prosthetist, tremendous physical therapist, tremendous doctors, all there. Incredible environment because there's dozens and dozens of amputees doing all the same thing, working hard. Great environment to be in, state-of-the-art equipment, tools, everything was the best it could possibly be. And so they never doubted anything that I wanted to do ever. And so it was just, if I asked, can I do... X thing, they would say, well, let's see. They would never say no. They never say yes. They would never say no. Well, they usually, they, they would, they might say yes to a, a lot of things. Like, can I run? Like, oh yeah, probably. But it was always just, let's find out as opposed to saying no or doubting you. They would say, well, let's talk to process. Let's talk to the physical therapist and let's see what we can figure out and how to do that. So did you have an opportunity to meet with other patients who may have been treated years before with similar injuries to get some peer support and maybe a better perspective of what to expect? Yeah. I mean, peer support was kind of built into the environment because there were amputees in the clinic that had been there for two years or one year, just longer than you or less time than you. I mean, when I was at Bethesda the first month, they got a peer visit from a couple of guys that that were at Walter Reed that have been going through physical therapy. And they kind of gave me a perspective and a picture of what they've been up to and what their lives were like. But I specifically remember this one guy, Dan, Dan Kanastin, the Navy SEAL. And he had been there probably a year before me. And I just kind of was able to use him as my basically amputee uh, mentor, amputee idol, because he could do everything that I wanted to be able to do. And so if I ever had a question, I could ask him how he did something. Or I could ask his physical therapist how he had learned how to do it. So yeah, that kind of thing was built into the environment. And then a year after I got there, I was able to answer questions for other guys in the same vein. Did you make any specific meaningful goals? Like by this date, I am going to do X, Y, or Z? My first goal was I wanted to be able to walk 
to the Marine Corps birthday ball, which is in the month of November, usually. And so that required me, let's see, I first got my legs in probably September. And so I had to be up and walking comfortably within two months. And I made that goal and my physical therapist was on board and she said, well, here's what you're going to have to do. You're probably going to have to come in two, three hours a day and do these exercises and do this practice. And I even have my prosthetist. I asked him, so when you first start in therapy, you wear what's called shorties, which is a prosthetic socket that your leg goes in and then a prosthetic component. That's just a prosthetic foot attached to this stiff pylon that doesn't bend. And so when you sit in your wheelchair, you sit in a chair, your legs stick out. And I didn't want to have to do that because I knew I was going to be sitting at a table or a round table. And so I wanted my legs to be able to dangle, but also be able to straighten them so I could walk. And so I asked my process about that and he said, oh yeah, we have this component that you can use. And so we put that on. It was basically this little knee joint that can lock out straight, but then you pull this little button and it bends. And then, so I got those and then everybody else in the clinic started getting those too. And so it was kind of this uh, neat little thing that happens in there where one person figures out how to do something and a lot of other people can start using that innovation. So tell us a little bit more about that progression of prosthetics. So you went from a shorty prosthetic, which was basically a foot. And then did you move on to a prosthetic with a computerized knee, mechanical? How did that work? Yeah. So basically they start for double above knee amputees anyway. That's obviously different for every level of amputation, but for a double above knees, they start you with shorties and like basically as short as you could possibly be. And they do that so that you have a lower center of gravity so that you can learn how to move your body and you learn to desensitize your stumps to the new situation that they're in, being encased in a prosthetic socket, putting weight on different parts of your leg that aren't used to it, and just kind of learn the balance, learn how to move around. And so if you fall, then it's very short. You can usually just lean over and put your hand out. And they use parallel bars in order to teach you, and then they use a walker, and they use canes. So the progression is parallel bars or shorties. And then outside the parallel bars of the walker in shorties, and then two canes, and then one cane, and then no canes. And then once you are able to walk with no cane, then they start to make you taller in your shorties to make it a little bit more difficult. And then once you get to a certain point, then they did this test where you'd have to walk from the outpatient housing to the clinic which kind of was uh, this meandering path and it was on concrete and it went up hills and down hills and on side slopes. So it was kind of like a nice little challenge. And once you could do that, walk there and back on your own without using a cane, then they would give you the bionic knees. And then they would start you, yeah, with bionic knees. And there was a lot of different bionic knees you could get. The ones they gave you first was a sea leg. And then once you kind of got good with that, they taught you how to use it. It's very sophisticated and it takes a long time to learn how to use and get good with it. Then you could try other ones if you wanted to. And then if you wanted to try a mechanical knee, you could. I never did really. But, and then from there, at that point, you start, are able to start learning sort of extracurricular stuff like running. And I learned how to ride a bike and I went to learn how to rowing and a lot of various things. At that point, it's just kind of learn whatever you want to be able to do. So did you have any mental health concerns in that early recovery period, nightmares, hallucinations, depression, anger, some of those things that may be expected? Did you have any problems with that? I didn't. The only hallucinations I mentioned were in the ICU. I think that was probably more medication induced. And so those started going away after I got out of the ICU. 
And from there, I really never had any mental health concerns, luckily. So you retired from the Marines in 2011. Did you ever consider trying to stay on active duty? I thought about it and I had that option available to me. They made it very clear that I could stay if I wanted to, but I kind of had this realization. And at first, when I got to physical therapy, everybody was so positive that I thought I I sort of had an unrealistic expectation of what I could do ultimately as a double above knee amputee. And so I assumed that I'd be able to just put on two prosthetic legs and go run and gun in Afghanistan again. So I kind of wanted to stay in. But as I started learning how to use prosthetics, reality kind of set in about whether or not I'd be able to go be effective in a war in Afghanistan. And I realized I probably wouldn't be. And so at that point, I decided to retire because I I didn't really want to stay in unless I could go do the same thing that I had been doing. So you've been able to do some incredible things since the injury, including winning a bronze medal in rowing in the Paralympics, riding a bike across America, running 31 marathons in 31 days. What's your primary motivation to do those things? So I started doing those things. You know, when I stepped on the IED, I sort of lost a path towards those qualities that I told you about way in the beginning that I'd read about in the Brotherhood of Heroes, brotherhood, courage, selflessness. So I kind of lost the path towards those things because I was leaving the Marine Corps, wasn't going to be in war anymore. So after I retired, I had to go on this search to rediscover that path. And so all these things that you just mentioned were me making the attempt to live that path. And so what I was trying to do with all of them was just was do that, figure out how to make a difference in the world and figure out how to do that while doing something that I enjoy. And so the rowing was first and I enjoyed it, but it didn't really have a whole lot of uh, greater purpose behind it. And then I stumbled upon, or I thought of the idea to ride my bike across the country, raise the money for veteran charities. And that court sort of did it, but I wasn't really able to put it all together because I hadn't gotten to a point where I was really ready to allow myself to be an example, allow myself to be a story that other people could use. And I kind of came to terms with that by the time I did the month of marathons. And at that point, I was able to put myself up as an example for other people more readily. And so really what I was trying to do with that was create this story that I could share with everybody that or create this story that would get told and then use that story to help people. And so that's kind of my, my main purpose is to live a meaningful life and live an enjoyable life. And so that was the way that I had decided to bring meaning to my life. And obviously I enjoy running and I enjoy doing all those things that I was doing. So what was the toughest things during those challenges mentally and physically, especially riding a bike across America and running 31 marathons in 31 days? What was tough mentally and what was tough physically? Mentally, it was probably the repetitiveness. The the bike ride was 181 days long. And so doing the same exact thing every single day, it gets very monotonous. It gets challenging to want to do it and you just want to be done. And there are certain times where it's a lot more difficult than I had anticipated. And there's certain times where I wasn't sure if I'd be able to make it up over a particular mountain because it's 11,000 feet in the air and it's at the end of this nine mile long steep climb. So being able to overcome the the doubts about that and go try it and see what I could do. And that's, yeah, and that's mostly it from a mental perspective. And then from a physical perspective, it's uncomfortable just from exercise fatigue. It's not easy to ride 30 miles a day every day for 181 days straight or run all the marathons back to back. But also from wearing the prosthetics perspective, they rub in certain places. There's a lot of impact on my body. 
at one time, at one point on the month of marathons, I slipped and sustained a back injury. So I had to run four marathons with a stabbing pain in my back every time I landed. And so it's just kind of the pain, I guess, would probably be the main thing. And then also for the bike ride from a physical standpoint, learning how to ride the bike and, and deal with the difficulties associated with that. And then obviously learning how to run and, and things like that and getting good at running and training for it. What is something that you feel that you learned about yourself following the injury? I mean, I just learned that I really thrive when I'm doing things on behalf of people that are important to me. I think that's kind of my main driving force is to, is to live that kind of selfless life or at least have some aspect of that in everything that I do. And I also learned that I'm not really satisfied either unless I'm doing something that really challenges me in some capacity. It doesn't always have to be a physical capacity, but challenging my beliefs or challenging my own self-perception or physically or whatever the case may be. How have you found the best way to use your experience to encourage others, maybe those who have amputations or maybe people with other struggles in life? What have you used in your experience to help encourage those people? I mean, doing stuff like this and I do motivational speaking and I try and tell my story on social media. And so as much as I can get my story out there, I think that's going to make it have the greatest impact because just like when I saw Dan in the physical therapy clinic on my first day, when I was first starting out, I didn't know anything about him. He didn't tell me anything specifically, but I sort of saw him and I saw his story and I sort of knew what I was going to be able to do, or I saw a potential window into my future. And so just having people hear the story. And then if I can give them some strategies that I've kind of picked up on that I've learned along the way that maybe they can use as well. But the main thing is just having people know about it. Cause I think a lot of the times people can get their own lesson that they need just from hearing a story. So I saw on your website, you have a motto that is survive, recover, live. How did you come up with that? And, and what does that mean to you? I actually came up with that when I was kind of in the early stages of my recovery, when I it wasn't completely, didn't have all my senses. I remember, I don't even remember writing it. I remember seeing it that I had written it on my Facebook page and thinking that it was pretty smart. So I think I wrote that when I was actually under the influence of morphine probably. But really what it is, is it's sort of three stages to a, a tragedy for me. And there's the, the best way to describe it would be my story from injury to you know, winning a bronze medal, where the survive stage is just sort of doing what you have to do in order to literally not die or literally get through the moment, the immediate moments around a particular challenge, whether it's not losing your temper or stepping on an IED and not bleeding out or whatever the case may be, just doing what you have to do in order to get to the point where you're going to survive where it's more likely that you're going to keep living than it is that you're going to die. And you can take that and apply it to anything in life. So whether you get to, you get to a point where it's more likely that you're going to maintain your cool, than it is that you're going to lose your cool. And then recover is doing what you have to do in order to gather up the tools that you're going to need in order to move forward. So recovering your strength, recovering your, your mental capacity, building relationships, whatever the case may be, but doing all the stuff that you need to do in order to regain what you've lost and then gain the tools that you're going to be able to use moving forward. 
And then finally, the live, live part of it is to actually move forward and try and make your life better than you thought it could have been before. And so the recovery period for me was obviously my time at Walter Reed and then my time at, at Bethesda as well. And then the live portion of it would be represented by training for the Paralympics and winning a bronze medal. A lot of our listeners have some connection with military medicine, either have retired or done it in the past or currently in military medicine or are thinking about joining military medicine. Looking back on your experience with military medicine and the system, what is something that you think that we did right? And where is some some place that we could improve on? From my perspective, I mean, they pretty much did everything right. I uh, really have very few criticisms. I had access to absolutely everything I could possibly have. I had an incredible environment to recover in. I had amazing people that were all just centered around our recovery and just trying to figure out anything that we wanted to be able to do, professionally optimistic people. And then the only criticisms I have would be the ones that we already mentioned. I, I don't really, which are all pretty minimal. And yeah, so I, don't, I really don't have much of a, assessment besides that besides it was it was amazing it was awesome and it continues to be i mean i have access i have free health care i have continuing prosthetic care at the drop of a hat all the legs i could ever want will be delivered to me improving technology surgeries that come out of all access to all these all these things disability pension va access health care all all the above so what's next for rob jones well, right now I've got a two-year-old and so I'm working on being a, a dad to him and trying to continue to get this story that we just told out there to help as many people as possible. So I do motivational speaking for a living. I'm working on a memoir. I just finished my fourth draft. Hopefully that'll be done in the near future. And that's kind of what I'm working on now and continuing to try and push myself in various ways. So when the history books are written, what would you want your legacy to be? So I guess from the perspective of my family, I just want people to remember me as a good, a good dad, a good husband, a good friend, a good sibling, son. But then from a, a global perspective, you know, I don't, I'm not really too worried about my name being remembered, but I would like to, people to remember the story of, of what I've done just because the more of these types of things that are out there, the better people are going to be. And so I, I'd be fine if there's a conversation that happens later where somebody goes, Hey, what was the name of that guy that ran all those marathons at that time, that disabled guy. And the other person just goes, I don't remember his name, but I remember that he was a Marine. And so that I'd be perfectly fine with that. Just somebody, as long as the story gets remembered and passed on, I'm not too worried about my name being associated with it. We've been speaking with retired Marine Sergeant Rob Jones on War Docs podcast. Rob, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to the nation and best of luck in all future endeavors. Well, thanks to you all too. And thanks to all those, those healthcare professionals that have been taking care of guys like me for the last, what, 20, 21 years now and are going to continue to keep doing it. So it's a, a huge part of, of what I've been able to do is because of those people. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team War Docs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's Wardox Podcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. 
If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.